You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, listeners. This is Kurt Sumner, your host for NSPS Radio Hour. Thanks for joining us again today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my third guest just joined us. Welcome, John. Good morning. I have with me today Pat Smith, who is the chair of the NSPS Government Affairs Committee, and J.B. Bird, who is our registered lobbyist, John Palatiello, who is our government affairs consultant. So uh, thanks for joining me today, guys. Definitely. Good morning. Glad to have you on the show again. We always have interesting things to talk about when you guys are with me. So uh, the primary thing we're going to talk about today is obviously uh, an example of the type of of why advocacy is important at all levels. Um, And we may have time to talk about maybe a few other issues that are out there that people may want to know about. But the primary thing we got together today to talk about was the Geospatial Data Act and its implications for um, procurement as well as a number of other things and in some degree how it has resulted in some conversation among our our groups of people in what's known as COGO, the Coalition of Geospatial Organizations, um, because that's a very diverse group. I think our members know that. And, of course, we're going to have sometimes we're all in concert on our thoughts and sometimes we're not, and often when we're not, it's over not not an entire issue but maybe a part of it. So that's really where we want to start. So maybe, I don't know who wants to begin, maybe John you could start and and talk about this particular topic, and then as we move forward, if we want to have the time, we can maybe talk about some other things that are on our plate right now. Well, thanks, Kurt. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. The, uh, the bill, and it's S-1253, it's known as the Geospatial Data Act, was introduced in May by Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah. He had a previous bill in the last Congress and um, reached out to the community and received significant input and um, revised the bill uh, to reflect that input. And the new bill is S-1253. That was, as I said, introduced in May. Uh, the intent of the bill is to address a long, long, long-standing issue, and that is to develop a better structure for coordination of surveying, mapping, geospatial activities in the federal government. You could fill a library almost with studies and reports that have been done regarding surveying, mapping, and now geospatial coordination or the lack thereof in the federal government. And so Senator Hatch's bill is an attempt to bring some consistency across the government, create a better governance structure, uh, improve the coordination, reduce duplication, and uh, put together a structure where federal agencies can better uh, arrange for the collection of data and then um, provide services in the application of use of the data to implement programs and solve problems. So that, in an overview, is is what the bill is all about. And um, um, have there been hearings already? I assume there have been. That there have not. Leading up. Oh, there have not. Okay. 
There have not. Uh, the uh, feedback that we've received, and JP and I have been involved in a number of meetings and teleconferences and email exchanges uh, on this bill, but the uh, feedback is that there is not a consensus even within the geospatial community on this bill. And the Senate does not have an interest in holding a hearing and uh, finding that there are divisions within the very community the bill is intended to try to help. Kurt, I think you and I were together uh, some years ago on a bill in the Virginia legislature, and uh, um, Jay O'Brien, who at the time was a member of the State House, held a hearing on a bill uh, dealing with surveying and mapping, and he coined a phrase that has lived on, and he said, when there's peace in a valley, come back and see me. Well, that's essentially what the Senate Commerce Committee has said. When there's peace within the geospatial community on this bill, then come back and then they'll hold hearings. And um, those are the discussions that are ongoing as we speak. So in, in efforts to reach that, and I know that Recently, there was discussion, has been discussion back and forth, and even in a in a meeting of the of the Cogo Group, I guess last week or the week before. Uh, that's obviously going on, and we're aware of that. Are there other groups out there that are having these similar discussions, or are the the Cogo groups the primary ones that are affected enough to even have dialogue? I think it's primarily the organizations that are also members of Cogo that uh, have the greatest interest in this bill and. They're the ones that um, Senator Hatch and his staff have been having discussions uh, with. So the the peace in the valley that we're talking about is a I won't say it's an internal thing because all of our groups are diverse, of course. But as far as Kogo is concerned, it's it is a bit in house, so to speak. We're we're talking amongst ourselves about it to to try to reach that harmony that they're looking for. Within the geospatial community, yes. Yeah, right. And, um, and there are a variety of, uh, of issues, and uh, uh, Pat will recall that we had quite a detailed conversation last year about the original bill and what kind of uh, changes NSPS would like to, to see. And um, uh, I'm sure other organizations went through a similar process. The um, the issue in large measure and the challenge is that there are only a handful of groups within COGO that even have a presence or a program with Congress. Um, NISJIC is somewhat active, although they don't have a registered lobbyist. MAPS is active, and as you know, JB is also the MAPS registered lobbyist, and NSPS is very much involved. Um, ASCE has lobbyists, but they're not as active in COGO on legislative issues. And the Association of American Geographers has a government affairs staff person. Um, but most of the other organizations just don't even participate with Congress. And um, I would say that many of them don't have a very good understanding of how Congress works. So... Um, Many of these groups may not have even been engaged or um, took it upon themselves to reach out to Senator Hatch and uh, articulate a point of view. And then when the bill was introduced in May, there were groups that were not happy about 
some of the provisions that were in the bill. And I, I kind of joke, I'm old enough to remember the old uh, um, Father Guido Sarducci character <laughs> on Saturday Night Live and did a skit once where he was talking about the Pope and birth control, and he had a, con- uh, a comment where he said, you know, play the game, you know, make of the rules. Well, you know, if an organization is not going to be active with the Congress and um, articulate its point of view, then it's a little late to come to the game afterwards and say, oh, gee, we didn't know a bill was being introduced or we didn't uh, have an opportunity to provide input. You know, you gotta you got to put a team on the field if you want to play in the game. So what do you think the... And, and, and I'm asking for opinion here, of course, because none of us know for real, for real, I guess. Maybe you do, but I'm just curious. Um, with our COGO group, and I forget how many people, how many groups we have in it now, but there's more than 10, I think, uh, maybe 12 or 13. Um, but of, of those that you mentioned who are active in these issues on a routine basis, being a relatively small number, or actually a really small number among that group, um, is the reason the others don't have that kind of thing because they don't have the the same kind of infrastructure as as a an NSPS or or a MAPS or uh, an ASPRS or people like that who have interest in these issues and and deal with them all the time? Or do they just not have that infrastructure? Or I, I'm I guess I'm perplexed a bit as to why if there is an opinion that's going to come along sooner or later. <laughs> What's the reason they don't have that advocacy? Maybe it's because they don't have enough. I don't know. Do you know that? Well, you're right. I'm expressing an I'm expressing an opinion, but uh, they don't have an infrastructure, and that is uh, my guess. The decision of their members or their board of directors that public policy issues are not a high priority for them, so they are focused on other things, whether it's education or certification or technical standards or whatever it may be. But their focus and the purpose of their organization may be uh, on other activities, and government affairs and public policy is not among those. So they, they don't have that infrastructure. But any so, of them can. There's, there's one misnomer. You know, I, in fact, I had an email exchange with someone the other day saying, well, we're a 501c3 organization, and therefore we can't lobby. Well, that's, tr- that's not true. That is a misunderstanding of a lot of people. A 501c3 organization can certainly lobby. The IRS rules are that a substantial portion of your annual budget cannot be um, expended on lobbying, but that doesn't mean the organization cannot lobby. It certainly can. And, of course, an organization that's structured as a 501c6 organization, like NSPS, like MAPS, uh, certainly can and, and does get involved in uh, public policy advocacy and lobbying. Yeah, well, I just wanted to to touch on that topic just a little bit because I know as our listeners are hearing what we're having to say, I'm sure that question would be in their mind as well. Okay, if if an organization is set up, and, and again, I'm not saying COGO was set up specifically to deal with with these types of public policy issues, um, but if you're in that uh, in that group of people who are trying to find some commonality um, on these issues, I, I guess one might expect that they would be. But having said that, I know that 
COGO goes beyond just these issues. We talk about other issues as well. And it's important to point out that uh, from a legal standpoint, COGO is a non-existent entity. Uh, COGO right. has is is not filed with the IRS. It's not filed with any state. It's not an organization unto itself. It is a loose coalition of organizations that are filed, that are structured, um, that do exist. And the purpose of COGO is to try to find those areas where there is agreement um, on an issue so that perhaps um, an issue can be advanced and, uh, and garner more support when all of the dozen or so geospatial organizations that are part of COGO can unanimously agree on a position. Uh, right, right now with regard to this well, legislation, we're, we we're cannot. about 20 seconds out from break, John, so I, I'll yep. let you pick up on that when we come back from break. But I did want to touch on this because I think it's important for our, for our conversation today okay. for better people to have a better understanding of what COGO is about. So let's go to break. We'll be right back. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. As we go into break, uh, John Palatillo was was talking about our the group that we are a part of, the COGO group, and explaining how they work and explaining how the different organizations are structured and where their viewpoints may be coming through. And I know, John, you were... You were at a point, I didn't hate to interrupt you, but we had to go to break, talking about those different groups, their structures, and and what COGO tries to do. So I don't know how much more you want to cover on that before we get into our specific topic today. Well, I was just going to point out that uh, the operating rules of COGO are that it only lends its name to a position if it is agreed to unanimously by all of the participating organizations. If... Um, 
if agreement, unanimous agreement cannot be reached, then any subset, any handful of organizations can certainly uh, take a position on its own but cannot put the COGO name on it. And so so uh, we, could, we could be with any number of the other COGO members and file as those groups collectively but not as COGO. Uh, express opinions, file comments, uh, anything of, of that nature to let those organizations' views be known, but only under the name of COGO if it is unanimous among all of the participating organizations. So I don't know, JB, uh, you or Pat, either one have any comments you'd like to make regarding that whole COGO structure or, or anything related to it before we move on? Well, Curtis, Pat, and kind of follow along the lines of what uh, John Palatello was talking about, it's, it's kind of difficult for me sitting here as, as a representative of NSPS to then take that COGO framework and see where we're going to achieve, as as it was coined earlier, peace in the valley for this piece of legislation. Um, you know, it, one thing for, for any group of members of COGO to finally reach some sort of level of opinion, but I, I don't see where there could ever be unanimous opinion on this subject. And... You know, with that being said, what weight then would COGO have to continue to weigh in on this piece of legislation? It's it, it's kind of, you know, in a sense, that old saying, herding cats, we're trying to herd cats as we walk through these topics and allow everybody their, their right to be heard. But at some point in time, we're going to have to move forward as a, as a diverse subset of organizations. To, to get to any level of peace in the valley. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And we all, a lot of the times when we are talking about issues within COGO, we find ourselves in a similar situation. Um, and, and again, John, you're much more involved in all of that than, than all of us are. But that's my, my sense of it. And, and when I've been participating from time to time that, it often is hard, not impossible. I, we have issues where we've we've had complete uh, agreement. Oh, absolutely. And Kurt, I, and it's important. Good, yeah. And uh, Pat and Kurt, it's important to remember that uh, when COGO came together and was formed, it was NSPS and MAPS that put forward a recommended business model, and that was the very successful model that under which Coffpace has operated for almost 50 years, and that is that uh, Coffpace was much more narrow. It was about um, federal procurement of architecture, engineering, and related services, and it was to preserve, protect, promote, defend the Brooks Act, and the agreement was that Coffpace would only do that when there was unanimity among the participating organizations. So it's a model that can work uh, and has worked in Coffpace, and that was the model that... Uh, everyone agreed would be the proper one for COGO. It just it becomes much more difficult when you now start talking about issues relative to geospatial data, and, and we seem to revert back to the, I guess I could call it age-old discussion on what's geospatial data and how does it tie into what 
all levels of practicing professionals do relative to state licensed surveying and mapping activities. How, how, you know, we're back to the same discussion. Is it surveying and mapping under a state license scenario, or is it GIS-related services? And I'm, as, as we continue to look at these issues, I, I kind of get stuck on how do we get past that point to then be able to push something forward from a federal-level geospatial data perspective. You know, it's interesting, Pat. I was doing some research. Uh, this is John Palatiello gun. I was doing some research on uh, for another purpose over the weekend, and I was reminded of uh, something that um, occurred back in the 1980s, and that was uh, that Coffpace was having uh, discussions about actually amending the Brooks Act. Brooks Act had been enacted into law in 1972, and by the 1980s, the entirety of what the broad architecture engineering community did in the marketplace had changed tremendously. And there was discussion about uh, Mr. Brooks was still in Congress at the time. There was discussion about approaching him about a new amendment of what is meant by architecture engineering and related services. And I had forgotten, I was reminded in doing my research, um, going through some files over the weekend, that when those discussions started, the National Society of Professional Engineers took the position that the Brooks Act should only apply to services that require a licensed architect or engineer. And at that time, ACSM said, no, there are other services that are of an architectural or engineering nature that other professionals can perform where the argument for qualifications-based selection still applies. And that ultimately was the prevailing point of view, and COFPACE unanimously came to that agreement. Uh, legislation was introduced and, in fact, passed into law. And, um, but there are still organizations today in COGO and that's the, the real heart of the matter that is dividing COGO today, is there are organizations who just, their mind is made up and they refuse to be confused by the fact that the Brooks Act does apply to services other than that which is required to be performed by a licensed architect or engineer or surveyor. And so uh, this is deja vu all over again to... Remember Yogi Berra's famous line, uh, we've been down this road, we've debated this, um, uh, and uh, what's ironic is that uh, ACSM, the predecessor of NSPS, took the position that, no, we should not be restricting this to licensed architects and engineers, and today there are groups that are saying, well, that's exactly what NSPS is trying to do, is restrict all of this work to a licensed surveyor, and nothing could be further from from the truth. Yeah, that's... Oh. I, go ahead, Pat. Well, I was going to say, I, I agree wholeheartedly in looking at this piece of the legislation. It, it doesn't change the operational parameters of, of the Brooks Act. Uh, it just makes it, everyone aware that it does exist, and the services that should be procured under the Brooks Act should continue to be procured under the Brooks Act. You know, it, Correct. The, the, and to clarify those areas where there's been some question. And then that leads to the, the 
real heart of the matter here in looking at this piece of legislation is how do you define what should be and what shouldn't be considered geospatial data, i.e., what should be the services underlying that data. And I struggle when in legislation when you start trying to define something and how you define it. You define it by inclusion. Well, if you don't list everything, then because it isn't listed, is it not part of it? And I think that's getting into the real meat of the discussion in, internally with COGO and maybe with anybody looking at this piece of legislation. How do you define what's going to be geospatial data? Maybe, John, you could expound a little bit on that particular item from the, from the perspective of when data is collected. Some people would say, well, this piece of data was collected to do that, and this piece of data was collected to do something else. But isn't part of what this, this Geospatial Data Act is about, it, this is going to be a bad analogy, but kind of back to the uh, map it once, use it many times kind of thing. I mean, there's lots of different uses for the data. But if one of those uses is going to be sur uh, from surveying and mapping perspective or the uses of the data for that type of activity, um, how would you pull it out then and say, well, this is, the, this is for this purpose and that over there isn't? Well, I don't think it would be a wise move for Congress to try to define what is in or out of a definition of geospatial data based on what the use of the data is. I think it is a much more reasoned approach to define the type of data being collected. And here's why. is Today with digital data, and when you have mechanisms like a GIS, when you have the geospatial platform that the federal government is building, there's no control over what people do with the data. And so our effort in discussions with Senator Hatch has been to try to distinguish between the collection or acquisition of the data where quality in that process, quality in the contractor that's providing that service is of utmost importance, as opposed to the use of the data in a GIS, pulling it off of something like the geospatial platform. Um, while that is also important, it is more important to make sure that quality is a premium with the acquisition of the data in the first place. And that is the distinction that we've been trying to make. And and just it seems as though, and we only got a, a, about a minute to go, so maybe we can get back on this when we come back, but it, it seems as though thinking from that, that perspective that everyone would want the best data they could get regardless of how they're going to use it. Um, and so it that it, it is done in a way that it fits all those uses, including the ones that are Brooksack-type activities um, moving forward. So um, I get maybe we can pick up, like I said, maybe we can pick up on that when we come back. But and, and maybe we've talked about it enough already. I'm just kind of talking from my own perspective of why would you not want the quote the best data or the be the collected uh, by the best methods for all purposes if you're trying to create a bill that's 
that's useful for everybody who's going to use it, not just this group or that group. So maybe we can can do that because, like I said, we're 10 seconds out. So we'll go do that break, and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not... Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for Quickstakes today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're going to ask John Palatel to, to kind of wrap up the part of the discussion we've we've had been going here for the for the first two segments, and then JB has some news for us. I understand. So, John, if you would, yeah, just to uh, to sort of wrap up the discussion that uh, that Pat left us with before the break, and that is that uh, Kogo in the early days of that organization, it's been around for about ten years now. In the early days. Kogo did come to agreement about procurement, and it has an adopted procurement process, and it is a qualifications-based process. And so on the substance, I think there is room for agreement within Kogo, and in fact, Kogo has already reached agreement of what the desired process is. And none of the organizations around the table uh, at Kogo believe in awarding geospatial contracts to the lowest bidder. Uh, Every organization, again, back to our original discussion, unanimously approved a process that is a qualifications-based selection process. So hopefully we can reach some agreement and um, educate people on some misperceptions they have about the federal QBS law, and we can move forward with the bill. I, I think that's the best result. We're going to achieve, you know, we're we're not rewriting the Brooks Act. The Correct. Brooks Act stands as is, and if if this piece of legislation could move forwards and just make sure that that geospatial data, however it gets ended up getting defined in here, 
is acquired through a qualifications-based process under federal contracting, then it's the best that's going to be achieved. And if it were up to the four of us, we'd have unanimous agreement on that. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, just one other quick question before JB gives us the news. Um, when Pat just made his statement about the, the government being involved, um, does does that automatically then have an impact if a state were doing the acquisition? No. The language okay. that is presently in Senator Hatch's bill does not affect procurement if it is done, say, by state or local government expending federal money. So if they get a grant and they're doing the contracting, this language, as it currently reads, does not uh, reach down and affect that type of activity. Okay. This is strictly federal procurement, direct federal okay. procurement. Okay. Okay, JB, what's the news? Yes, hey there. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Kurt. I appreciate you having me on again. Um, yeah, so as, as John Pelletiello has mentioned and Pat has commented on, the, the Senate bill number is S1253, introduced by Senator Orrin Hatch, a Republican of Utah, and he did that in a bipartisan manner with uh, Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat of Virginia, and we're happy to share the news this morning that we've... Uh, it's, come to our attention that the House bill will still be will, will soon be introduced uh, by Congressman Bruce Westerman, a Republican from Arkansas, and he's teamed up in a bipartisan manner with uh, another member of Congress, Seth Moulton, a Democrat from Massachusetts. And it's our understanding that they will be introducing a companion version, which is basically the, the similar version of S-1253, in the in the house, so we are. It's under our, our understanding that that language that shows up in the Senate bill, the Hatch Warner bill, one two five three, will be very similar, if not identical, in the House bill that will soon be introduced. And we we it's our understanding that it will be done very early this week. And uh, NSBS has been asked to provide comments and potentially a letter in support of the bill. So that is the brand new news about the uh, Geospatial Data Act and the progress that we expect to see this week in the House. Now, for the listeners, uh, when this when this kind of thing happens, when you have a Senate bill and a House companion bill, does the does this expedite anything in terms of getting all the way through when you have these companion bills, or do they always happen? Do you always have to have a companion bill? Well, so the, the the optimal thing is to have identical language. Uh, eventually, any kind of um, differences in the bill will need to be reconciled in the future. So it's in our uh, it's NSBS's best uh, interest to have identical language for a couple of reasons, but tactically down the road when it comes to having the House pass a version of a bill and the Senate passing a version of the bill, at that point, any again, any kind of differences would need would need to be reconciled. So, the fewer the uh, differences, the easier the process at the end uh, at the end of this legislative process. Right. Thanks for clarifying. So, Kurt, as you remember your uh, high school government class, uh, the way a bill becomes a law is the bill has to pass the House, it has to pass the Senate in identical form, 
and then go to the president, and the president signs it into law. And so uh, while every bill does not have a House and Senate version, it ultimately does have to be approved by both bodies. And therefore, if you have identical House and Senate bills to start with, as JB just said, it does give you a little bit of an advantage. So um, this is good news that there will be an identical bill introduced in the House. You know, when you said that, it, when you mentioned high school, it reminds me, I, I'm probably too old to remember that far back, but uh, Trish, who works in the office with us, was making a comment once that of remembering the little, I, I don't know if it was a little song uh, called I'm a Bill or something like that, that kids used to learn when they were in school. I don't know if you guys, you guys probably as old as I am, so you don't remember that, but no. um, it, it was intended to do exactly what you're talking about, John, to help people understand what, how the process works. Okay, um, at this Kurt, point, I'm sorry, go ahead. I apologize. Go ahead, Kurt. No, I was I was just going to ask if we needed to, to, to get into any more details in the in the bill itself, but if you had something else, John, J.B., go ahead. No, I, nothing nothing specific about the details in the bill. Okay, so well, so Kurt, the real the real issue here that is um, that I think is most dividing the the organizations within our community is um, the definition of what is geospatial data and what is in the bill today. Um, and this was primarily um, initiated by I believe NISJIC is uh, the language from the NCWS model uh, law and model rules to define geospatial data. And then it is the question of, does the bill include language that talks about procurement, a procurement process uh, under the Brooks Act for the acquisition of services to collect that data? And I think once... Uh, we can reach agreement on those two issues. Uh, I'm not aware of any other major issues outstanding with the bill. So um, we'll be working to try to uh, resolve that and, and come to an agreement. Excellent. JB, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you there a minute ago or confuse you with, with jumping in. No, I was just simply going to add on a, a quick point about um, the, 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 the prospects and the interesting angle is that you commonly hear that there's really not a lot of bipartisan uh, legislation in Washington, and the fact that there's both a Senate bill currently and a soon-to-be-introduced House bill uh, with bipartisanship right off the bat for identical language, that's going to be a major, major impact to the survey and mapping and geospatial community. Uh, I think there's we, there should be a lot of a lot more attention to this bill as a result of that. The interesting thing on the House side, when you take a look at Mr. Westerman of Arkansas and Mr. Moulton from Massachusetts, they both reside on the House Budget Committee, and to have uh, folks on the Budget Committee take notice of geospatial and work together in a bipartisan manner, then that that will be very helpful for uh, future uh, coordination efforts for geospatial expenditures in, in the federal budget. So uh, very encouraging sign uh, on the House side for sure. So, Great. J.B., this, this is Pat. So that being said, because one of the things this piece of legislation does is establish a new committee within the government, then for this to even become truly viable for us in the professional community, 
there's going to have to be some type of funding mechanism for it, if, if I understand this correctly. So having that that budget connection from the very beginning can, can only do good things for us as we move down the road with this. Well, the bill really doesn't create a new committee. It is still the Federal Geographic Data Committee, but the composition of that committee changes, the composition of uh, the NGAC changes, and what's most significant in this bill, Pat, is the fact that rather than the FGDC being a committee chaired by the Department of the Interior and the staff sitting at USGS, this bill... Uh, as you'll recall, because this was a point that NSPS felt very strongly about, this bill makes the FGDC uh, a body within the the executive office of the President of the United States. It is in the Office of Management and Budget. And that's important, too, because, again, it's the Office of Management and Budget. So you can tie management initiatives with budget initiatives if it's all coming out of the same office. So that's why it's very important that this bill moves the FGDC to OMB. And now, again, that was something that NSPS felt very strongly about. Thanks for the clarification. It, it, it all starts to tie together. And, you know, another, another question on the process while we're talking about it is since, you know, we've been focused on this Senate bill, but now, as JB said, we have a companion bill in the House. Um, what's y'all's thoughts on the, our ability to take whatever changes occur on one side or the other and just have them promulgated across the board so we do end up with a bill that by the time it passes House and Senate, you know, if it goes to conference committee, is going to be easily settled and just moved on through the process? Well, I'll let JB uh, comment on this, but I'll say, Pat, I, I would not put this bill at the same level as repeal and replacement of Obamacare. <laughs> I think the <laughs> I think the opportunity for agreement is much greater on this one than it is on some of the big issues of the day that Congress does try to uh, to work out. And I would imagine that there would not ultimately be a conference on this bill. Um, any differences between the House and Senate, I think, can be worked out informally, and then one body or the other will take up the uh, the other's bill. But um, in the scheme of things, this is not going to be a highly controversial bill, um, you know, at the level of uh, health care or tax reform or some of the major issues that uh, immigration or the others that Congress is grappling with. Okay, thanks. I just wanted our members to kind of get a, a good concept of, of how we move forwards and the, you know, the chances of, of easy, easy success on this. Well, and with that, it's time for us to go to break again, so I'll have JB pick up when we come back. So we'll be back for our final segment in a couple of minutes. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com. That's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quick stakes today. 
Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. In our final segment, we'll wrap this issue up and maybe talk about a, another issue or two just briefly if we have the time. But, J.B., before we went to break, uh, we kind of interrupted you. You were going to talk to us a little bit about uh, the, the movement on the bill and how that will work, what, our, what the chances look like. Yes, uh, thank you, Kurt. Uh, so... What we would expect to happen uh, with with the House bill soon to be introduced as early as this week, um, there's going to be an opportunity for NSPS members to uh, ask for co-sponsorship for not only the Senate bill but the House bill. Uh, this can be done uh, during the August recess. Uh, we're still on the working assumption that there will be an August recess, and that's usually when Congressional members, senators are back in their respective districts and states uh, to to uh, be more in tune and connected to their constituents. So that would be a, a really appropriate time to reach out to House members as well as senators asking for co-sponsorship. And typically, what will happen, Kurt, is uh, in a two-year congressional cycle, the odd year this year, the 2017, that seems to be more of the opportune time for. Uh, Congress to move both the House and the Senate bill. This is typically going to be a, a less of a controversial bill than some of the big-ticket items that uh, John Pelletiello alluded to before the break. And so I think our, our best chance of actually seeing both versions of the bill, the House and the Senate versions, move would be uh, sometime in September at the earliest. And so, uh, again, we would very much encourage uh, NSPS members to reach out and ask for additional co-sponsors uh, to, to, once we have a, a House bill number, we will certainly circulate that and make, make, get, the, get the news out through the News and Views publication and uh, other ways that we can try to uh, um, mobilize the NSPS members uh, in support of the House and Senate bills will, will be definitely in touch. Uh, later on this year. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I appreciate you saying that because I was going to ask the question: um, When would be a good time to begin to to make this put the you know to 
put this issue or begin to put the issue into the newsletter. And I'll leave that up to you guys on timing. You know much more about that. But we we can do that. We can begin it any time you want. And, Kurt, this is uh, uh, what JB is talking about is exactly why we're trying to establish the NSPS political and legislative alert team, or PLAT, which is to identify the members of NSPS who know they're a member of Congress. They have a business relationship. They have a church relationship. They have a social organization relationship. The congressman was a client of the surveyor, whatever the nature of that relationship may be. It's useful for us at NSPS to know what those relationships are and who has them so that we can get our members to reach out and talk to their congressmen or senators on issues that are important to the surveying profession. So I would just remind everyone to go to the NSPS website at www.nsps.us.com. If you click on advocacy, the first item that comes up on the drop-down menu is NSPS Plat Team, and we'd encourage folks to fill that out. Let us know who they are and who they have a relationship with in Congress so that we can put you to, uh, uh, to become a, a citizen ad, uh, advocate, a, a grassroots lobbyist on behalf of the profession so that we can uh, favorably uh, act on legislation that is uh, good for the country and good for surveying. Great. That's, I don't know. Does anybody else have anything about on this particular issue? I had a, a couple of other questions or comments or topics that we might talk about a little bit, although we only have nine minutes left. But uh, if Kurt, there's more did, to say I on think, this issue, though. Well, I think there is uh, some good news to report, and I'd like JB to jump in as well, particularly on another piece of breaking news that I think he can share with everyone today. But uh wanted to go back on some of the major things that, uh, that JB and I, and JB in particular, have been working on uh, and the issues that the NSPS members discussed in Congress when they were on Capitol Hill back in March. Um, there is movement on a uh, national flood insurance program, uh, FEMA reform bill. Uh, JB and I had a conversation with the legislative counsel's office in the House uh, last week uh, on some surveying and mapping provisions to help improve that program, and uh, there may be action on that very soon. The FLARE Act to create a federal uh, current accurate inventory of the land the federal government owns. That is in the energy bill that has been introduced, again, bipartisan, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, uh, and so we're in good shape there. Um, we are still hopeful for action on the issue of private sector utilization, and you'll recall that President Trump issued an executive order and looking at things the government does that can be better done in the private sector, and NSPS did submit comments on that. And um, and then the other big one, and I would like to turn it over to JB, is we've got have some exciting news on the appropriations level with regard to infrastructure and how important the role surveying and mapping and geospatial data plays with regard to the infrastructure bill that we hope to see uh, later this year. JB, yes, John. Thank you for the, the setup there. Um, Later this evening, the uh, House uh, Appropriations Subcommittee that helps fund the Department of Transportation, among other federal uh, agencies and, and departments, will have a, a markup session, which is an easy way to say they've got a draft bill for appropriations. And within the language for the report that accompanies the legislation, 
Uh, here's directly what the language would do for infrastructure mapping. Uh, it's entitled Infrastructure Mapping with Geospatial Tools, and DOT, the Department of Transportation, possesses and collects much information on airports, airways, roads, bridges, and transit infrastructure, but this rich data source is neither location-based nor integrated across asset types. As the nation contemplates making a significant investment in improving infrastructure, the committee encourages the Department of Transportation to establish a location-based, comprehensive, integrated asset database that would allow the selection, management, measurement, cross-asset analysis, and impact of infrastructure investments using competitively acquired commercial geospatial tools. This would optimize the department's ability to properly analyze the condition of assets, project outcomes of investments, choose investments that would be most impactful, accurately report where investments were implemented, monitor infrastructure projects, measure the results of the investments, and provide data for public oversight in a modern, completely transparent environment. In other words, uh, as the Trump administration and and or anything that the uh, House or the Senate uh, would, would move forward with with infrastructure, geospatial surveying and mapping will be a prime, prime emphasis in anything infrastructure-wise. So I think uh, NSPS members can be very encouraged by this language that showed up uh, and will be moved out of the uh, respective uh, House Appropriations Committee later today. So, Kurt, if you'll recall, when uh, when our members were on the Hill in March, one of the issues that they brought to Congress was uh, a recognition of the important role that surveying, mapping, and geospatial data plays in infrastructure. And this is a an outcome of that. This is a recognition by the Appropriations Committee of the importance of the data that our members provide. And uh, this is an instruction to the Department of Transportation to start uh, collecting, managing, and using that data to uh, enhance our nation's investment in infrastructure. So it's a big victory. It's exactly what we were trying to to achieve. And uh, I think this really makes it uh, much easier to get similar language now in the infrastructure bill when ultimately there is one in Congress. So am I understanding that this one is um, imminent in terms of passage, or is it still in the discussion stage? Well, what JB just read is re- what's called report language. Every bill that's reported from a committee in Congress has a report with it that explains the provisions, and sometimes there are initiatives that are in the report but not necessarily in the bill. That report language generally is not controversial. So this will, okay. uh, yes, your term eminent, yes, this is likely to be part of the final bill. This is for the appropriations bill for the Department of Transportation beginning on October 1st for the coming fiscal year 2018. Excellent. Well, we've got a, a about three minutes left. Pat, you have any closing comments you'd like to make? Um, no, I'd just like to... You know, thank John for the pitch on the PLAT program. Um, you know, it, it's a program that allows us to achieve results as things happen. Uh, very important for us to get co-sponsors for pieces of legislation that, that we want to promote. And to also second John Peace's comments on, on the trips to the Hill and the conversations that were had. 
may not seem like they achieved much at the time, but all those conversations add up in the background and relate back into what JB was talking about when terminology like that gets put into an appropriations bill. It's there because the message has been delivered at some point to all the different members on the Hill. So, uh, right. you know, I think, I think our members are being active, and I think it's, it's starting to pay off. JB, anything for you? Uh, just to sum up, uh, based on what Pat and John have covered, uh, we always discuss the idea that uh, the political connections and political uh, involvement is a process, not a one-off. And it's the value of repeatedly going to the Hill and making ask of, of members in position that can be helpful to NSPS membership. So as Pat mentioned, uh, continue this process. Uh, the results might not seem uh, imminent at one point, but they sure look way more imminent now, and that's uh, value to the commitment of NSPS members going to the Hill and making these political asks of, of their members of Congress and senators. Very true. Well, John, we're at a minute and a half. Well, I wouldn't let a conversation like this go by, Kurt, without uh, reminding everyone that NSPS also has a political action committee, and that is a very important ingredient. It's the honest, legal, ethical way for our members to be involved in our political process. The PAC accepts voluntary personal contribution from individuals in NSPS, and there is um, a contribution form, uh, e-commerce form, on the uh, on the NSPS website, and I would just encourage our members, whether even if it's 10 or 15 or $25, uh, every little bit helps, and I would encourage uh, all of our members to make a contribution to the NSPS pack. That's what Thanks, opens doors and gets us heard and uh, makes these things that we have just talked about for the last hour happen. Great. Well, I appreciate you three being with me today. I, it's really important. And particularly as we are right now, we're talking about a specific thing, and it's important for people to know that, about that. But even the other topics that we've covered today are important, and we probably should do this more often than we do because there's always things going on. But for, uh, beyond that, though, thank you so much for being with me today. I think it's been great for our listeners and, and great for NSPS. So I appreciate it, and we'll be talking again soon. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for QuickStakes today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.